Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth. Episode 16 Constantine the Eleventh. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the tragedy of the Fourth Crusade, which seemed to fatally cripple the Byzantine Empire. The Emperor Alexius was flung from the top of a column, and a new crusader-controlled Latin Empire was created on the bones of the Greek one. But though its capital city may have been conquered, the imperial family was large, and Byzantium survived in exile. It watched as the Latin knights slowly trickled away to the west, and the bumbling Latin emperors with their empty treasuries gave themselves up to lives of pleasure, without attempting to govern their crumbling empire. Only 57 years after the capture of the city, the Latin Empire would expire in a fitting whimper, overpowered by a handful of men in a single night. Michael VIII, watching from his base in Nicaea, decided that the time had come to claim his patrimony. Sending his Caesar to test the strength of the capital, he arrived to find that the garrison was away. Seeing an unlocked gate, the Caesar entered it with a handful of men, threw the few guards from the walls, and opened up the gates. The pathetic Latin Emperor Baldwin fled on a Venetian ship, and Michael entered the city in triumph through the Golden Gate. Carrying the city's most holy relic, an icon of Mary painted by St. Luke himself, he was crowned in the Hagia Sophia and vowed to restore the empire. He would do what he could, but it was much too late to salvage the fortunes of the empire, and the final two centuries of its existence make for depressing reading. The city itself was a wreck. The Latins hadn't bothered to rebuild, and instead used the damaged buildings for firewood or left them where they stood. Even worse, the unity of the Byzantine world was lost. Imperial offshoots in Trebizond and Epirus would remain stubbornly independent, sapping the already weakened strength of the empire. The only hope of salvation was now the West, but the Fourth Crusade had permanently ruptured relations. For the large majority of Byzantines, who could remember the devastating sting of Crusader steel firsthand, the Catholic world was no longer in any meaningful sense Christian. Western military aid, which always came at the price of submission to the Pope, was viewed by most Byzantines as too expensive by far. Disunited and weak, the city that had once dripped in gold was now impoverished. Buildings devastated by earthquakes were not rebuilt, and trade in the imperial harbor dropped off precipitously. By the time of the coronation of John VI in 1347, anyone could see just how far imperial fortunes had fallen. The crown jewels used in the ceremony were obviously made out of glass. The real ones were in pawn to Venice. And the dinner afterwards was served on humble plates of pewter and clay. That same year, as if an awful portent of divine wrath, the Black Death struck the city, and the population, once the largest in Europe, shrank to less than a 100,000. No longer able to stand as a bulwark against the Islamic tide, the empire was failing just as a hostile new power was rising. Turkic nomads had a long history with the empire. From the Huns of the 5th century to the Seljuks of the 13th, they had long menaced imperial frontiers. The Seljuks had appeared to be the most threatening, but with the Mongol capture of Baghdad in 1258, Seljuk power had been broken, and Asia Minor had dissolved into petty kingdoms. Groups of Turkish nomads came streaming in, and one of them, led by an extraordinary warrior named Othman, soon came to dominate the area. Declaring jihad, Othman united several tribes and soon managed to conquer the ancient city of Ephesus. The Byzantine emperor responded by marching out with his army, but he suffered a shattering defeat, revealing that the weakened empire was powerless to stem the Turkish advance. 
A few years later, Othman captured the city of Bursa at the western end of the Silk Road, just across the Golden Horn from Constantinople, and made it his official capital. It was a deliberate choice, and he made no secret of his ambition to take Constantinople. But he was growing old, and that would have to be left to his sons. At his death, the Turks, now calling themselves Ottoman in his honor, were the major powers in Asia Minor. Nicaea and Nicomedia fell in rapid succession, and soon all that was left of the empire in Asia was one or two islands and cities that the Turks hadn't bothered to conquer yet. Fortunately, they didn't have a foothold in Europe, and without a navy were unlikely to be able to cross the straits. But incredibly, the Byzantines, instead of uniting against the obvious threat, soon fell to squabbling, and one aspiring claimant for the throne offered the sultan the European town of Gallipoli in exchange for their support. Thanks to their control of the Anatolian heartland, Turkish manpower was virtually limitless, and the suicidally short-term thinking of the Byzantines resulted in Turkish troops streaming into Europe. By 1360, they had conquered Adrianople, the second city of the empire, and moved their capital into Europe. Selling part of the population off into slavery, they forced the emperor to pay tribute to avoid a siege. At last realizing the danger, the Byzantines awoke to find themselves completely surrounded in an Ottoman sea. Again and again emperors traveled to Europe and begged for assistance, but the message was always the same. Convert to Catholicism first, and then perhaps they would consider a crusade. Increasingly desperate emperors even considered personally submitting to Rome, but Europe had its own problems. France and England were fighting the Hundred Years' War, and the rest were too united to offer any real assistance. Constantinople, now cut off, was besieged repeatedly as sultans hurled their forces against the walls. Serbia and Bulgaria, now directly threatened by the rising Turkish tide, were willing to help, and for a moment it seemed like the sultan would be checked. But at the Battle of the Maritza River, the Crusader army was crushed and most of Bulgaria fell under its sway. The Serbs bravely continued to resist, but on the fields of blackbirds in the terrible Battle of Kosovo, Serbian power was broken as well. The emperor of the Romans was forced to become a Turkish vassal, and in a final act of humiliation, was compelled to take part in the siege of the last Byzantine stronghold in Asia Minor. It seemed as if the empire would expire in humiliation and decay, but somehow it was able to limp along for another fifty years. Much of this was due to the emperor Manuel II, who, refusing to be a vassal, twice had a furious sultan at the walls determined to crush him. The first time he was rescued by Tamerlane, the fearsome Mongol invader who shattered the Ottoman army on July 28, 1402, and reportedly kept the sultan in an iron cage for the rest of his life. The Byzantines, however, cut off and alone, were too weak to make much use of this respite, and Turkish power had recovered within a decade. By 1422, the Ottomans were back and demanded the city's surrender. Manuel, in a bit of diplomacy that can only be described as Byzantine, saved the city by successfully encouraging one of the sultan's sons to start a civil war back home. His oldest son, John VIII, who succeeded him on the throne, undid much of his careful work. Depending on the West for salvation, John traveled to Rome believing that by now the Turkish menace was self-evident and a crusade would be imminent. He found to his horror, however, that they were still asleep to the danger. Only hungry, threatened, and exposed was willing to help but their price, as usual, was the familiar submission to Rome. Desperate, John rashly promised to convert the empire to Catholicism. After 14 years of negotiations and diplomatic maneuvering, he gathered a group of intimidated eastern bishops and signed a decree of union, 
officially joining the churches. He returned to his capital to find that his promise to convert the empire had seriously undermined his own credibility. Those who had signed the hated decree of union with the emperor all publicly retracted their signatures, and with riots exploding in the capital, one of the emperor's brothers tried to seize the throne in the name of orthodoxy. Everything now depended on the crusade. The outcome was never really in doubt. The far superior Turkish army would have been formidable if the odds were equal. As it was, they outnumbered the crusaders three to one. In a few hours' time, the crusading army was completely annihilated, and John VIII, who had pinned everything on the outcome, saw his last hope snuffed out. Once more a minor Turkish vassal, he was forced to present himself to the sultan and congratulate him on his victory. He had incurred the wrath of his people in vain, and he died a broken man. The man who took his place, his younger brother Constantine, was everything that he had not been. Like his famous namesake, Constantine the Great, his mother's name was Helena, and he would prove to be a worthy successor. History remembers him as Constantine the Eleventh, last of the Byzantine emperors, but he always preferred to go by his mother's Serbian name of Dugasis. The eighth of ten children, he was by far the most able of his father's sons. Charismatic and courageous, in another time and place, he may have become one of Byzantium's greatest emperors. Deeply patriotic, he inspired loyalty in others, and with over twenty years of experience fighting the Turks, he knew his enemy well. Forty-four years old at the time of his accession, he had lived through at least one siege and had no illusions about the vulnerability of his empire in the face of Turkish power. The borders of his empire were now contained within the walls of the city. Its people were poor and demoralized, its monuments were fading, and its prestige was gone. Surrounded on all sides by an enemy that seemed bent on destruction, there was little room for hope. But he resolved to reign with a quiet dignity that didn't involve surrendering or becoming a Turkish vassal. He knew full well that the Turks were a hostile power who had openly been trying to conquer the city ever since they had first burst upon the scene. And he would not, like Western Europe, pretend that they were a benign, non-aggressive force. Nor would he, like his predecessors, cower before their superior might. That would only add humiliation to the eventual destruction. He was a man of action, and if the city must fall, then it would go down fighting with its head held high. The throne was a sacred trust, and he was determined to do everything in his power to preserve its independence. He had first-hand experience of Turkish fighting ability. As a young man, he had been given control of the Peloponnese, the last Byzantine stronghold outside the walls of the capital. At the time, it was a patchwork of petty kingdoms all overshadowed by the looming Turkish power in the north. Setting to work, he managed to completely restore the province to Byzantine rule, even pushing into northern Greece. The annoyed sultan decided to teach him a lesson and sent his troops into the area. Constantine was ready for him. His greatest hope was the Hexamillion, the formidable six-mile-long wall that he had repaired just north of the Isthmus of Corinth. If he could hold the line till winter, the Turks would be unable to enter the Peloponnese, and the province would be saved for the empire. Entrenched behind the wall with his men, he thought he could resist for months, but the Turks brought with them their deadly new weapons, several large cannons. The firepower unleashed brought down the walls in a mere five days, and Constantine barely escaped with his life. The sultan, determined to crush the notion that he could be resisted, allowed his troops three days of rape and plunder, reportedly taking 60,000 prisoners and selling 7,000 women and children into slavery. 
The lesson was not lost on Constantine, and when he became emperor, he did everything he could not to antagonize the Turks. When the sultan died in 1451, the second year of his reign, the people of Byzantium breathed a sigh of relief. The new sultan, Mehmet II, was only 19 years old, and when ambassadors were sent to congratulate him on his accession, he swore by the prophet and the Quran that he would devote himself to peace with the empire and with Constantine for as long as he lived. Western nations were also reassured, and they accepted his word, eagerly believing that he was weak-willed and not a threat. He was, in fact, a mass of contradictions. A poet and a scholar fluent in several languages, he was also an unstable tyrant capable of incredible cruelty. A brilliant organizer and strategist, he was so superstitious that he wouldn't attack without the blessings of an astrologer. As much a man of action as Constantine, he could at times act with an almost Machiavellian decisiveness. His ascension had been a relatively easy affair. His father's only son was an infant at the time. He invited the child's mother to the palace, and while he entertained her, he sent a minion to kill the boy. The next day he executed the minion for daring to spill royal blood, and then married off the devastated mother to one of his officials. It was, in his mind, the only way to prevent a civil war, and he would later famously remark, Whichever of my sons achieves the throne, it would behoove him to kill his brothers in the interest of the world order. It should have been a clue to his character, but to most Byzantines and Western Europeans wanting to believe the danger had abetted, it passed unheeded. They were soon to be bitterly disillusioned. At its narrowest point, the Bosphorus separates Asia from Europe by only 700 yards, and it is here that the sea can be most easily crossed. 2,000 years before, the Persian king Darius had realized as much, and had chosen the spot to cross with his massive army, on his way to meet the doomed Spartan king Leonidas and attempt to absorb Greece into the Persian Empire. On the Asian side of the straits, Mehmet's grandfather had built a fortress to oversee the waters, and when Mehmet saw the site, he shrewdly realized its importance. While the European side remained in Byzantine hands, he could never reliably cross over, an unacceptable situation for the master of two continents. If, however, he seized the other side and built a fortress, not only would he have the ability to cross at will, but he could effectively cut off Constantinople's food supply. Wasting no time, he destroyed the Byzantine buildings in the area and used the demolished monasteries and new churches for building materials. Not bothering to hide his intentions, he named the new fort the Throat Cutter. It was complete within an astonishing four and a half months and was a testament to the magnificent Turkish organization and efficiency. In Constantinople, Constantine knew at once that his worst fears were realized. Sending ambassadors immediately to the sultan, he instructed them to remind Mehmet that he was breaking the Treaty of Peace and to ask him at least to spare the neighboring villages from pillage. The sultan refused to even hear them, sending them packing without granting an audience. A second attempt met the same fate, and an increasingly desperate emperor tried a third and final time. Would you at least promise, he asked the sultan, that the construction of the fort does not herald an attack on Constantinople? The ambassadors were seized and executed, and Constantine was left to draw his own conclusions. Earlier that year, Emperor Constantine had received a visit from a young Hungarian named Orban. A specialist in the construction of large cannons, he offered the emperor his services. Constantine, having seen firsthand the power of the new weapons, realized the man's importance, but he was simply too impoverished to do more than authorize a small stipend to retain him in the city. 
Unfortunately, even this proved to be beyond the resources of the empire, and after several months of spotty payment, the increasingly destitute Orban left the city and offered his services to the Turks. The Sultan welcomed him, showering him with gifts, and asked the Hungarian one question, Can you build me a cannon large enough to smash a city wall? Orban, who had plenty of time to survey the walls of Constantinople, replied that he could make a cannon so large that it would turn the very walls of Babylon to dust. He set to work immediately, crafting a bronze monster that could fire a 600-pound stone ball. Mehmet had it mounted with two others in the throat cutter. He now could cut off all trade on the Bosphorus, and he announced that all ships must stop and pay a toll at one of the two fortresses. The guns looked impressive, but the Venetians, confident in their master of the seas, didn't take it too seriously. When one of their ships tried to run it, Mehmet had them blasted out of the water. He then had the crew executed, impaled the captain, and publicly exposed his body as a warning. Mehmet was doubtless pleased with his gun, but he wanted a bigger one, and he ordered Orban to build the largest cannon ever cast. The result was a behemoth, 27 feet long, with a barrel over 8 inches thick of solid bronze. More than two times larger than any cannon before it, it could fire a 1,500-pound ball over a mile. Mehmet was delighted, and now turned to the problem of transporting it the 140 miles from its foundry to the walls of Constantinople. Once again, he applied his organizational skills to the logistical problem. A team of carpenters and masons leveled hills and built bridges ahead of it. As 60 oxen and 200 men pulled it across the Thracian countryside at the lumbering pace of two and a half miles per day. As always, wary of a new crusade, Mehmet knew that he had to deliver a quick knockout blow before the West could respond. Gathering an immense army, he set out for Constantinople on March 23, 1453. Constantine hadn't been idle. He'd spent his time repairing and reinforcing walls, clearing out the moats and storing up food, arrows, and anything else that could be hurled down at attackers. He realized that resistance was probably doomed before the Turkish onslaught, but was willing to do almost anything to save the empire. His brother had promised union of the churches, but in the uproar, a service celebrating it had never occurred. Now, in a final bid to tempt the West into sending aid, he had the decree read aloud in the Hagia Sophia. The mood in the city was somber. With certain annihilation approaching, there were no riots or public outcries. The faithful simply avoided the ceremony and vowed not to enter any church polluted by the Latin rite. Easter that year fell on April 1st, and while the churches throughout the city celebrated the Eucharist, the Hagia Sophia remained eerily dark and silent. Five days later, the Turks arrived. To the horrified citizens watching from the walls, it appeared as if the Turkish army was as numerous as the stars. Constantine's appeals to the west had fallen on deaf ears. Genoa had sent three ships, and Venice, after much deliberation, had promised 15 galleys and 800 men, but they delayed their departure until April 20th, and the fleet never arrived. All the Venetian merchants in the city had vowed to stay and help, but seven of them managed to sneak out, carrying 700 desperately needed men away from the beleaguered city. The only bright spot for the emperor had been the arrival of the brilliant Giovanni Giustiniani from Genoa with a private army of 700 men. It was hardly an encouraging situation. When Constantine ordered a count of all able-bodied men, including monks and clerics, who could take part in the defense, it was found to be just under 5,000. This, added to the 2,000 foreign troops and sailors, brought his fighting strength to just 7,000, supported by a fleet of 26 ships. 
These had to be spread out to guard over 12 and a half miles of wall. Against this meager force, Mehmet had assembled 150,000 troops, 10,000 janissaries, and at least 130 ships. Riding up to the gates, he went through the motions of demanding immediate surrender. Receiving no reply, he opened fire on April 6th. The land walls that Constantine now defended were the most formidable in the ancient or medieval worlds. Even the scourge of God himself, Attila the Hun, had turned away when he had seen them. An attacking army would first have to cross a deep crenellated ditch, 60 feet across and 30 feet deep, then breach an outer wall 30 feet high and evenly spaced with 96 towers. Beyond that was the massive inner wall, also punctuated with 96 towers and rising to an additional 40 feet. Already over a thousand years old in 1453, they had never before been successfully breached. The sea walls, where the crusaders had smashed their way in, were a bit lower, but couldn't be accessed by the Turks, since the imperial harbor was protected by a great chain running across its mouth that was anchored in the Tower of Galata, a Genoese colony on the northern side. Constantine only had enough men to guard the outer walls, and their weakest point was where they crossed the little Lycus River. It was here that the emperor and the brilliant Justiniani placed themselves, guessing it to be a likely target for Mehmet to concentrate the brunt of his attack. They were soon proved right, and the spot was subjected to a bombardment unprecedented in the history of siege warfare. The stone balls struck the walls with a tremendous force, shattering the brick and occasionally bringing down whole sections of it. By the late afternoon of the first day, a large portion near the gate was reduced to rubble, and Mehmet ordered an immediate assault. The emperor managed to hold off repeated attempts to smash their way inside, and when night fell, Justiniani devised a way to repair the walls. Driving wooden stakes down into the rubble, he then dumped anything he could find into it as a makeshift barrier. It worked remarkably well. The loose rubble absorbed cannonballs better than the solid brick, and every evening the defenders would rush to repair the damage done during the day. Frustrated with his lack of progress, Mehmet decided to bring up more cannon and concentrated on a single section. While waiting for it to arrive, he passed the time by attacking two small fortresses which were protecting small villages nearby. Angered by their continued resistance, he decided to send a message to Constantinople about the cost of defying him. After the fortresses surrendered, he had all the defenders impaled in sight of the land walls. He then stormed the prince's islands in the Sea of Marmara, killed the garrison, and sold off the inhabitants to slavery. By April 11th, word came that his cannons were in place. Determined to prevent the defenders from repairing the walls at night, he ordered an uninterrupted bombardment that lasted for 48 days. With much of the land wall reduced to rubble, the Turks attacked, but in a heroic defense, the emperor was once again able to hold them off. The sultan decided to change his tactics and try his luck with the lower sea walls. Ordering his fleet to ram the chain protecting the harbor, he waited to give the signal for assault, but the great chain held. At this point, four ships were seen on the horizon, three Genoese warships and a Byzantine transport loaded down with a much-needed cargo of corn. Knowing the effect on morale the ships would have if they could make it into the city, Mehmet ordered them captured or sunk at all costs. At first, luck seemed to be with the Christian ships. They were the better sailors and managed to outmaneuver the Turks, but suddenly the wind dropped, and with their sails hanging limp, each one was quickly surrounded by 30 or 40 Turkish vessels. The one thing that kept them from being immediately overwhelmed was their superior height. They could fire down on their enemies, and when the Turks tried to climb up to board them, 
The Genoese used their huge axes to lop off their heads. Mehmet, in his excitement, rode his horse into the waves, shouting commands to the sailors, until the bottom of his robes were dragging in the water. The most vulnerable ship was the weighted-down Byzantine transport. It was giving a good account of itself, spraying Greek fire onto the decks of any ship foolish enough to approach it. But running low on supplies, it was clearly in danger. Somehow, the Genoese ships managed to reach it, and succeeded in lashing all four ships together. Resembling some huge floating castle, they were swarmed, and the watching defenders, cheering from the walls, soon realized that the currents were slowly driving them to the Turkish shore. Just when it seemed all hope was lost, the wind picked up again, and the heavier Christian ships plowed through the Muslim ones, splintering them like matchsticks. By now the Turkish oars had become horribly fouled, and the admiral, fearing the sultan's wrath, courageously rammed a Genoese ship to prevent its escaping. It was a futile act. The Italian ship sailed away, the chain was lowered, and they were jubilantly cheered as they sailed into the harbor. Mehmet, who had always been famous for his temper, was furious over his public thwarting. When his tremulous admiral was brought before him, wounded in the eye from the battle, he ordered his immediate execution. Only after the unfortunate man's subordinates came begging for his life, pointing out his tremendous personal courage, did he commute the sentence. The admiral was beaten on the soles of his feet, stripped of his titles and property, and banished. The failure of his fleet to take the Italian ship certainly stung, but Mehmet was more aware that his prestige had suffered as well. The defenders had taken hope from his inability to storm the harbor, and that could not be allowed to continue. The great chain protecting the harbor couldn't be forced, anchored as it was in the Genoese colony of Galata. He could, of course, storm Galata, but he did not yet have a navy capable of challenging Genoa, and had no desire to antagonize them yet. But for someone of his limited resources, there was another option. In a stunning display of Turkish planning and organization, he transported 70 ships overland, bypassing Galata altogether, and dropped his fleet silently into the imperial harbor. Constantine was stunned. The Genoese of Galata had not even attempted to warn him, but even if they had, he would have found it hard to believe. If the Turks weren't driven out of the harbor, he would have another three and a half miles of wall to defend, virtually impossible for his already stretched forces. Desperately, he sent some sailors to try to take the Turkish ships by surprise. Once again, the effort was defeated by the Genoese of Galata, who, eager to stay on the winning side, warned the Turks of the approaching attack. The Byzantines managed to destroy one Turkish ship, but 50 sailors that the defenders could ill afford to lose were killed in the struggle, and another 40 were captured and executed in sight of the city. For the exhausted defenders, it was too much. Burning with grief and rage, they took 260 captive Turks to the top of the walls and executed them in revenge. If they had not known so before, both sides now knew that no quarter would be asked or given. Now that the harbor was lost, the Byzantines could no longer fish in safety, and food began to run seriously short. The only hope was that the promised relief force from Venice would arrive, and all eyes eagerly scanned the horizon, not believing that the Christian nations of the West would leave them to their fate. Finally, on May 3rd, Constantine made the decision to send out a ship to find out where the relief fleet was. A small Venetian boat carrying a Turkish flag managed to sneak past the patrols and escape into open waters. It returned on May 23rd, again managing to outsail the pursuing Turks, but the news it brought was hardly comforting. After three weeks of searching, they had seen no sign of the fleet. The brutal realization began to sink in. They were terribly alone. 
Deeply moved, Constantine thanked each sailor personally for their courage. They could have sailed to safety, but had elected to return to certain death to keep their word. The imperial ministers begged Constantine to flee and set up a government in exile until the city could be retaken. The Crusaders' kingdom had eventually collapsed, and the Ottomans would as well. The important thing was just to keep the emperor alive. Exhausted but firm, he refused. These were his people, and he would be with them to the end. In the Turkish camp, Mehmet prepared his troops for the final assault. Not bothering to try to keep his plans a secret, he announced that Monday would be a day of rest and prayer, and Tuesday, the 29th of May, would be the final push. In Constantinople, the exhausted defenders had reached the breaking point. Subjected to a continuous hellish bombardment, they had to brave the Turkish guns by day and repair the walls by night. There was little time for rest, no peace, and tensions had begun to flare. But that Monday, the last in Byzantine history, the mood changed. There was no rest for the weary, of course, and work continued. But for the first time in weeks, the inhabitants of the city began to make their way to the Hagia Sophia. It was the spiritual heart of Byzantium, and in their hour of despair, there could be no other place to go. There, for the first and last time in its history, liturgical differences were forgotten. Hatred between East and West, Latin and Greek, dissolved into insignificance, and a truly ecumenical service began. For one brief moment, Christian unity had been restored. Constantine, meanwhile, gave a final speech to his assembled troops. First, he addressed the Byzantines. They were, he said, a great and noble people, descendants of the heroes of ancient Greece and Rome, and he knew that they would acquit themselves in a fashion worthy of their predecessors, in the defense of their city where the infidel sultan wished to seat his false prophet on the throne of Christ. As for himself, he would willingly sacrifice his life for his faith, his city, and his people. Turning to the Italians, he thanked them for what they had done, and said they were one with his people. Then he walked slowly to each man, giving him encouragement, and begged forgiveness if he had ever wronged them. Like the rest of his people, he then went to the great church. Entering without fanfare, he remained until the church was dark and all but a few permanent candles were blown out. Emerging from his time of prayer, he headed to the palace to say a final goodbye to his household, then spent the rest of the night riding the length of the walls, assuring himself that nothing else could be done. At 1.30 in the morning, the attack began. Mehmet again concentrated his fire on one section of the walls, pounding it to rubble and preventing the defenders from repairing it. Then he sent wave after wave of his shock troops into the breach. For three hours they crashed against the walls, where, thanks largely to the efforts of Justiniani, they were repulsed each time. Justiniani and the emperor seemed to be everywhere at once, encouraging the men and shoring up the line wherever it wavered. By four in the morning, both sides were exhausted, and Mehmet pulled back his irregulars. They had played their part well, and the sultan, giving the defenders no rest, sent in the main bulk of his army. The Turkish forces crashed into the Byzantine line, each man eager to gain the sultan's favor on earth or rewards in paradise by perishing for his faith. They came within inches of forcing their way in, but this time Constantine himself appeared in the breach and beat them back. Mehmet, watching from the Turkish camp, was angered by yet another failure to take the walls and sent in the Janissaries. The Janissaries were the elite fighting forces of the Turkish army, made up of Christians who had been taken from their families while children and forcibly converted to Islam. They were fanatically loyal and expertly trained. Marching in an unbroken line, they approached at a run, 
accompanied by a terrifying din of martial music. Somehow these two were repulsed, but during the assault Justiniani was wounded when a crossbow bolt crunched through his chest armor. The wound was fortunately a superficial one, but Justiniani was too exhausted to continue. Constantine begged him to stay, knowing what would happen if his men saw him leave, but Justiniani was adamant and had himself carried down to a waiting ship in the harbor. The emperor's worst fears were realized immediately. The Genoese, who had fought so heroically, now saw their commander carried away and assumed he was dead. They retreated, streaming through an inner gate, and Mehmet, realizing that something was wrong, launched another wave of Janissaries. Meeting little resistance, they overran several towers, trapping most of the defenders between the walls. Constantine, watching from his position, knew that all was now lost. With the cry, The city is lost, but I live, he flung off his imperial regalia and plunged into where the fighting was thickest, disappearing into history. He was never seen again. The carnage was terrible. All the pent-up frustrations of a besieging army exploded as Turkish soldiers ran wildly through streets soon slick with blood. They met little resistance. The Venetians and Genoese managed to get to their ships and escape, but the few defenders left alive wanted only to reach their homes and somehow shield their families from the storm. It was all to no avail. Women and children were raped or impaled, houses were sacked, and churches were looted and burnt. Gold-encrusted icons were hacked to pieces, books were ripped from their valuable bindings, and anything not nailed down was hauled away or destroyed. The imperial palace was left a hollow shell, as even some of its floor mosaics were pried up and destroyed. Only the great church of the Hagia Sophia seemed to be calm. A service of matins was being conducted, and when they heard the commotion, they barred the great bronze doors and continued with the service. It was an empty gesture of resistance, and the Turks soon smashed their way in. Most of the congregation was butchered on the spot. The priests were killed at the high altar, and the rest were sold into slavery. Anything that looked valuable was pried from the walls or smashed, and anywhere a cross could be found, it was hacked out. Even the marble floor wasn't spared. As Mehmet entered the church, he saw one of his soldiers hacking away at it and angrily stopped him. He saw himself as the heir of the Romans and was already styling himself as Caesar. He would bring back glory to Constantinople, making it once again a great world power. And just as this church had been the heart of Byzantium, now as the chief mosque it would be the heart of the Ottoman Empire. The golden mosaics were hurriedly painted over with geometric designs. Huge shields were hung with verses from the Quran. The high altar was removed and a mirab was cut into the wall at an appropriate angle. The impact on the Turks was immense. At last they had fulfilled the long-held cherished dream of Islam to conquer the city. They had reversed the tide of Alexander the Great's conquests, and now the countries of Europe would tremble before their might. Even today, the Turkish flag displays a waning, not the traditional Islamic crescent moon, proudly remembering that in the early morning hours on May 29, 1453, a waning moon hung in the sky. The Greeks, too, could not forget that last horrific day, and legends soon began to be told. The priests had not died when the Turks burst into the Hagia Sophia. They had stopped in mid-chant and melted into the walls. Only when the city was again in Christian hands would they reappear and take up the service from where it had been interrupted. As for Constantine XI, the heroic last emperor, his body was never found. He had not perished in the fighting, they said, but had been turned to marble, sunk beneath the golden gate, and would one day return. 
In the five centuries of Ottoman domination to come, many Greeks saw him as an iconic symbol of resistance against impossible odds. He became the first Greek proto-martyr and unofficial saint, and Mehmet, always superstitious, had the Golden Gate walled up to prevent his return. In a final act of recognition, the city of Athens, when it achieved its independence, erected a statue of the emperor, still standing with his sword arm defiantly raised. The sack of Constantinople was a watershed moment in history, and when the smoke cleared from the Turkish cannons that awful Tuesday, it became clear that more than just the Eastern Roman Empire had ended. The world was changing, and the Middle Ages themselves had passed away. A new spirit of adventure infused a Europe that stood on the cusp of the Renaissance. Ottoman control of the East shut down the familiar overland routes to the Orient, and ships were already speeding to find new routes. Only 35 years after the fall of the city, Bartholomew Dias rounded the Cape of Good Hope, opening up a sea route to India. And just four years after that, a little-known Italian named Christopher Columbus would discover America. The age of exploration had begun. The Byzantine Empire had drawn to a close, and perhaps it's fitting that after 1,200 years, the last emperor, like the first, had been a son of Helena named Constantine, and in his hour of need, he had a Justinian by his side. It was the end of the empire, but not the end of Byzantium. Join me next time as I look at the cultural legacy of the Byzantine world. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.